Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 7.07 in the Twin Cities. Pretty relatively mild, 55 degrees. Uh, my next guest is a name you has name you probably will recognize, Marty Seifert, for many years, I think 13 years. He was uh, in the Minnesota House of Representatives. He actually was uh, the minority leader and ran for governor. And actually, I find it difficult to believe that he hasn't been in the legislature since 2010. But I think that that's right. And he has written a new book that is based it's on a true crime story that happened in an area right near where he grew up in uh, southwestern Minnesota. And Marty Seifert is joining us right now. Marty, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Asma. Is it really? Have you been out of the legislature since 2010? I know. It seems like yesterday, but I mean, I still appear on radio and uh, political events and things. And so the new adventure with authoring the book, obviously, but uh, I still do some, I, you know, I do some government relations for the rural cities and some disabled folks. And so I still am uh, part-time involved with government relations with the legislature. So you know, I, I'm still over at the Capitol and keep an eye on things there. But uh, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask you about about miss, missing missing the the, la, the countdown <laughs> in <laughs> well, just a few I, minutes. I as minority leader, and it was the pressure to uphold vetoes for Palenti, and now it's the total opposite, where you have a DFL governor and and a Republican legislature. So it's just so Minnesota is just such an interesting state in so many ways. That's a that's a that's a good word, Marty. Interesting when it comes that's to this. Minnesota polite. You know we are. We're you know interesting is a code word for a but, lot of things. But listen, I I do want, and maybe we'll ask you about that in a little bit. But let, let's let's talk about this book because it's called Sundown at Sunrise, and it is uh, it, it reads like a novel, but it's actually based on an actual true crime. But the right. level of of detail that you have in there. Um, you know, you've got conversations, and so it has it. It, it reads like a novel, which is which right, is right, right. It's historical a, fiction based on a true story, so it's the sweet spot of keeping people's interest. Absolutely. All right. How did you? I mean, what made you decide? Why don't you tell us a little bit about this this the crime story, and and what made you decide? I really want to do this. I really want to go in depth into this and get into this story and and recreate these people's lives. Yeah, you know, I grew up by the murder site. Um, Clemens is, is the town that it took place by. It's a farm place two miles north of Clemens on the corner. It's still there. It's an abandoned farm place on the corner of Minnesota 68 and Redwood County 1, two miles north of Clemens, six miles west of Morgan, where I went to high school. And we used to drive by this murder site when, when I was growing up. And I would ask my, you know, I was maybe eight or ten years old, and I would, I would ask my dad, hey, you know, why does anyone live in that that farm place? Because it's so nice, it's such a lo- good location. And you know, at first he'd kind of say something bad happened there, and kind of hit the accelerator. Um, <laughs> as we got, as I got older, um, he filled in the blanks with, you know, there was a guy who was a murderer. He was like three years older than Grandpa, 
and he took an axe one night, and he killed his wife with the axe, and he murdered his four children, and then he hung himself in the kitchen. And there was a teacher that lived with them and kind of a scandal with her, and she taught at the Sunrise Schoolhouse, which was across the road. Uh, that's where I got the title, Sundown at Sunrise. He murdered them at Sundown, March 24th, 1917, near the Sunrise Schoolhouse, uh, which was right across the road. So I just, you know, I got into politics. I, you know, graduated from college. I taught high school. I did all these different things, Um, built the cancer center in Marshall, raised the money for that and so forth. And then when I got done with all of that, I always had on my bucket list to write a book. And when I met with the publisher uh, out of the Twin Cities, uh, they said, oh, you know, you're probably going to write about, you know, running for governor or being in the legislature during these interesting times. And I said, no, no, I want to write about uh, a, a true crime murder in my home area. And he's like, oh, thank the maker, because nobody buys these political books. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, this genre is awesome. People love true crime if they like Minnesota history or true crime or kind of a mystery. Uh, and I really wanted to be rich and vivid with the details of how well, people lived in those days. Well, I, I you know, and I think I, I, you really clearly have got that, folks. And, and again, the book is uh, Sundown at Sunrise by Marty Seifert. And the detail, um, the, you know, the, the dances and, and, you know, the sort of the courting, how people. Once a week. And I mean, people today can. And I, I spoke at Tracy High School to their senior high English class, and they all wrote, read the book. And, you know, they, were, they can't imagine taking a bath once a week and not having running water, electricity, a crank telephone. I mean, it's just, it, I, I really wanted people to feel how they lived back then. Of course, they were transitioning from horses to cars and from horses to tractors. And so, and people can see pictures of characters out of the book. Um, there's a Facebook page for Sundown at Sunrise. There's a website for Sundown at Sunrise, and I give presentations. Now, I'm not having any between now and the end of session because I'm just too busy with my real job. Um, but I'm going to be doing a variety of presentations on the book, and I have big poster boards. I show people the characters and the towns, and it's usually a one-hour presentation. So there's a variety of libraries in the Twin Cities and beyond uh, in Minnesota that will be having me uh, throughout the summer and fall. It's just a ball. I love it. I had over 120 people show up in the Redwood Falls one. Wow. Okay, that's great. And again, the book Sundown at Sunrise, and there's a Facebook page. But I, let me ask you, because it's the detail, I, I think, is really, I mean, you really, it, it's very rich. And, and you really do feel, I think you succeed there in, in getting people to feel what it was like and, and just the minutia of, you know, how, how the clothes and the relationships. and Right. How, how yeah, you, 1909 to 1917 is the time frame. And I really wanted people to feel like they were living there with the family and, uh, you know, going into town and going to church and the different. And I got a lot of that from my grandparents. They listened very carefully when I was a kid. I love history, uh, particularly Minnesota history. And so, you know, for that, Monday was wash day. Saturday was was kind of the um, cleaning and baking day. Sunday was church day and relaxation day. And so I modeled a lot of what's in that book off of what my dad and what my grandparents had talked about um, when they were little and and just kind of molded it together. Uh, But but did you have have any other sources? Because as I said, I mean, the, the level of detail is it's just it's fat. I mean, it's really great. I thought I thought you really did a great job with that. I took a ton of newspapers from that era when I was looking up, like, when the murderer got married. Like, you know, they had their first child nine months and two days after the wedding. So, you you know, the listeners can figure the math out on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I looked up a lot of the things that were true. 
Um, the, 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 the woman who was murdered, her dad ran for sheriff in Redwood County. And in those days, they ran partisan, so he ran as a Republican. I just stumbled onto that in the Redwood Gazette. And I was able to put a lot of chapters in the book uh, together based on, on stumbling into things. Uh, in the newspaper. And so um, a lot of the stores that you read about in the book are, are they had advertising in the Redwood Gazette or the Morgan Messenger. And so um, I pulled those stores and the advertising together so people knew. And of course, the obituaries um, where uh, the, the murderer is buried with two of the children and then the, the wife that he murdered is buried with the two little children. You know, all of that's true, and you can go out to the Redwood Falls Cemetery and see her buried on one end of the cemetery and him buried on the other. Um, and I get a lot of good questions at these presentations, like, why was the murderer allowed to be buried with two of the children? I don't have a good answer for that. It could have been financial. It could have been that the parents were, both sets of parents were still alive when, when he did this because he was only 31 years old. Wow. Um, so, you know, when, when people read Sundown at Sunrise, they kind of get a flavor for uh, a lot of that. So I would say, you know, of course, all of the conversation is fictionalized because no one's alive from 100 years ago. But just the interesting things that have happened since the book got published, the niece of the murderer contacted me. Um, wow. And she didn't know anything. I researched whether he had any descendants and I couldn't find any. I looked kind of on 20 years on each side of the murders. She was born 23 years after the murders. And I never knew she existed, and she never knew about this, that her dad's brother axe-murdered his wife and kids. They kept oh. it from her all these years. Um, she was never told by anyone. <laughs> Is this a, l- a little bit of a shock there? To- <laughs> oh, my gosh. She was totally stunned. And so I get this, I get this uh, Facebook message uh, like a week after Christmas. She read it uh, around Christmas because a shirt tail relative had said, hey, um, I know your maiden name was Cleman, and you might be interested in this really good book. And here she sat down and read it at Christmas time. And at the end, oh, no. her dad is the teenager who's writing the obituaries with her grandmother. And she was just totally stunned by the whole thing. And, and so I got this Facebook message. That it started out saying, I am the niece of William Cleman. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, she's got to be 120 years old um, because this happened over 100 years ago. Um, and here it comes that her dad was the youngest sibling, and she's the only child of the youngest sibling, and he was married old when he was older in life. Uh, and so I, I feel somewhat guilty. Um, I mean, I, I feel guilty just naturally because I'm Catholic and so forth, but I, <laughs> I feel really guilty about just kind of telling her about this when she's 77 years old. She had no idea that uh that this had happened um, in, her, in her family so. and, and obviously they had moved on and but yeah and i just yeah. actually looking at the facebook page which is wonderful it's you know sundown at sunrise and you've got these f- fabulous photos where, where did you come across all these photos too you know most of the photos came after the book was published i had people like frank schottenbauer the hired man there's a picture of him from 1909 there's we're going to be posting a picture of the sheriff next week um, we had pictures sent to us of Maude Kleeman. I didn't know what she looked like until her great-great-niece from California sent me a picture. Uh, I knew what Henry Petrie looked like because he ran for sheriff and he had his picture in the paper. But a lot of these other characters are on the Facebook page. So, yeah, Sundown at Sunrise, it's real easy. And, that, and the webpage, too, so people want to order the book online, they can just go to sundownatsunrise.com and uh, order the book there. Or it's on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or independent bookstores can get it for you. But but generally, these Facebook um, pictures that we put out 
have all come after the book was published. In, his, in the publishing standard, they're that if it's historical fiction, even if it's based on a true story, you're not supposed to put pictures in the book. So I learned something as a first-time author. Oh, really? And and why why is that? Because it's a work of historical um, in fiction, case or just... the family doesn't like how you treated the character. So I mean, I have it as oh. kind of a proven fact that William Cleman did the murders. Although my great uncle, who was the coroner, conducted the inquest process, and they did it very quickly. And a you know a lot of these speeches I've been giving at the high schools and so forth, people are like, you know, someone. Someone else could have done this. In fact, the niece found a little letter after she dug her cupboards apart that belonged to her parents. Um, the niece met with me for supper, and she found a little thing that said, my dad never believed that these murders happened, that, that the hired man may have been involved or something. And so um, the, the, she said, I don't know if this was you know, our family rationalizing this or if maybe someone else did murder, murder the family and he was set up. Yeah. Um, so it, people read it, you you may have a little a little bit of doubt in your mind at the end. Did he really do this? Now I go based on the law, the inquest, and the newspapers, and I say that he did it. But um, if you read the book, you might surmise that someone else was involved. You know, it sounds as if um, this book is. You know, normally you write a book and and sort of that that's it, and you know people read it and whatever. But it sounds like it's almost sort of having a life of its own after oh, yeah. it's written. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, we have so many speaking requests, I can't hardly keep up with it. And the libraries, of course, you know, I mean, they can pay my mileage and all that kind of stuff. They have legacy funds and these little programming budgets. And so they have people pestering them. I was down in Jackson, Minnesota, giving a speech uh, not too long ago, and um, the, uh, uh, the librarian said there were 30 people on the waiting list wow. for, um, for getting the book. So, you know, that's that's interesting when you when you think that many people. So they were going to buy another copy of the book um, after the, uh, um, you know, after the book was available. So that's kind of the, you know, the interesting piece of it is she said, I need to buy another book and cut this waiting line in half. Well, <laughs> well so. and it sounds and I, lo- I love I love I mean, it'd be the perfect book for a, a class studying, you know, Minnesota history or American yeah. history. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, relevant to social studies and history. It's relevant to English. Right, because it, it just, know, it really does sort of show how people lived in, in this part of Minnesota, you know, you know, at that time. Um, well, let me ask you this, with, with this obviously a success, and, and I guess, let, let me ask you, so I, I want to make sure people know where to get the book, Sundown at Sunrise, um, you can, dot com, or you can yeah. go through Amazon or um uh, Barnes and Noble, you say it's pretty much anywhere where books are sold. Yeah, independent booksellers. I love these small bookstores. Oh, sure. Um, and hope people can patronize them. They can order it for you. Sundown at sunrise.com is probably the easiest way because it goes directly from the warehouse in St. Louis Park um, right to your home. So, I mean, it's there like a day and a half later. But um, sundown at sunrise.com has a lot of info. And they also are going to be putting out my next speaking engagements. Um, I think we're posting all the new speaking engagements here in a week or two. So if people are interested, it's always good to read the book first, of course. But uh, we've had book clubs. I was speaking in Glencoe. They had three book clubs. They all came, filled up the room. It's just been really fun. And the Facebook interactions, you know, usually you put stuff on Facebook and it might have 20 or 30 likes or shares. And when we first put the book out there, it had like 300 shares and like 600 likes and like 100 or 200 comments. And I was just blown away. 
that people were so interested in this, but there's so many people in Redwood County and that neighborhood in southwest Minnesota who had no idea this had happened. And so they're really fascinated. I feel bad for the farmer who owns that abandoned farm. Um, The neighbors told me there probably isn't uh, a day or a week that goes by that they don't see vehicles going back and forth (laughs) on the driveway. Because people just have this morbid curiosity, you know. Right. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. Um, obviously, this has gone well. I mean, and any any other books in, in Marty Seifert's future? Um, I would like to do a prequel to this and a sequel to this. And the prequel would be the Tibbetts murders that happened by Delhi, um, which is just a small town that's north uh, west of Redwood Falls. This murder happened south of Redwood Falls. And that, if you remember right reading the book, the Tibbetts murders happened right when Maud and Maud Petrie meets William Kleeman. Um, and so the, the era is about the same. Uh, the county is the same. And so I would like to do a prequel. Um, it'll be, you know, it'll be the same thing. It'll be historical fiction based on a true story. Although I think at the end of the book, I'm going to have William Kleeman maybe sitting in the back of the church or, or standing out at the cemetery or something just to move, you know, move it in. Right, sunrise, right. Sunrise. And then the sequel would probably be uh, relevant to the school teacher. You know, she dies a year and a half after the murders. She's the one who finds all the bodies, uh, or finds at least finds him hanging in the kitchen, and the neighbor finds the bodies when he arrives. But uh, she she does in true life. She dies a year and a half after the murders, wow. uh, and uh, she dies in Mankato. She doesn't stay for the funerals. She uh, hightails it out of, after the inquest. She hightails it out on the steam train out of Morgan on Tuesday. Uh, the funeral for William is Wednesday. The funeral for Maude and the kids is Thursday. Good Friday is the next day. And so she gets out of town, basically, and she moves along to uh, uh, try to teach school again south of Mankato. And then she actually dies of influenza. I do not say at the end of the book what she dies of. I just say that she dies to keep people interested in what's <laughs> going on here. Uh, well, but since your listeners are so awesome, I'll just tell people that she died of influenza. She did not commit suicide, which is what most people think she did. Well, well, listen. You know, it, it's it's a fascinating book, and again, it's really rich in in the detail and and so the layering and and what it was like and what what these people were like and what they wore and how they, you know, what the places were like and everything like that. So, I, I, and congratulations on it. Uh, again, it's sun sundown at sunrise, and you can get it anywhere books are sold. And then, if you want to see where Marty Seifert might be speaking. Uh, go to sundown at sunrise dot com, and and eventually they'll post up some of your uh, appearances there, right? Absolutely, yeah. So it'll be, uh, it'll be put on the Facebook page and on the on the website at sundown at sunrise dot com. But it's it's just been an absolute whirlwind. Um, we had no idea it was going to take off like this. We had to do a reprint uh, after the first two and a half weeks. We we thought three thousand books would would last a couple of years, and we were out in a couple of weeks. And well, it's so... <laughs> you, you do a really nice job, and, and as as I said, it's just it's very um, you really do a, a it's a a very vivid portrait of these characters and, and what it was like, you know, just what the bars were like or what the courting is like. Anyway, I just, oh, yeah. very, very, very good stuff. So, um, shocking the things that kids don't know today. Like when I spoke at Tracy high school, no, I'm not that old. I just turned 45 last week, but they don't, they don't remember seniors in high school, what it's like to go to a bar and have smoking there. Can you believe that? You know, I mean, that's how long we've had the smoking ban. Right. Something you and I maybe remember, these kids today are like, oh, there was smoke in these bars. I'm like, of course. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, Marty Seifert, thank you so much. And and so you're you're, you're not missing that, that, well, it sounds like you're involved, but but that rush or or that grind through May 22nd? 
Absolutely. The the legislature will be done one way or another, but uh, it could be July instead of uh, May. We're just kind of keeping our fingers crossed to get done on time. Yeah, it looks it looks a little dicey to me, but um... that's a good word for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, well, I always have the pride when I was minority leader. We never had a shutdown. Uh, we didn't have an unnecessary special session those three sessions. So it's always a badge of honor because uh, it has been kind of tough the last uh, ten years or so with with kind of getting things done on time. All right. Well, congratulations on the success of the book. And, folks, it, it really is, if you are at all interested in history or sort of crime stories, it, it's it's a great read. Uh, thank you so much, Marty. And I'm so glad that we uh, finally got you on. And I, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Marty Seifert, folks. And, again, the name of the book, Sundown at Sunrise. It's really a, a, I'm not surprised at all that it's doing this well. And, actually, the companion Facebook page is really cool with some some you know really cool pictures and uh, he explained you know why he didn't can't have the pictures in the book but he's got all these pictures on the Facebook page which is very cool. All right, folks, I'm a little overdue for a break. Uh, let's uh, take a quick break. Uh, we got much more ahead. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play it. It is 7.33 in the Twin Cities. Well, earlier today in numerous places around the metro area, there were drug and opioid uh, take-back centers where people were asked to bring in their old prescriptions and dump them off, leave them so they could be disposed of properly. Uh, It's part of an effort that uh, has been going on for a number of years, but has been accelerated recently because of the growing problem, uh, the epidemic really, of opioid abuse and the synthetic opioids. And the situation here in Minnesota seems especially, especially uh, serious with some of the latest figures that have come out. Joining us right now is Carol Falkowski. She is a longtime expert in this field, and it was just a couple of weeks ago when uh, the group that she organizes, her consulting uh, firm, really came out with some new analysis of this trend, and it's a pretty dire situation. And so we're grateful to Carol for joining us tonight to talk about this and to talk about uh, what ways we can perhaps work together to combat it. Uh, Carol, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. All right, absolutely, Carol. Let me ask you, what, what are some of the latest you know, analyses and, and statistics and figures that you were able to put together that really show how serious this matter is? Well, just for a little intro, I've been writing a report on drug abuse trends in the Twin Cities for over 30 years. It's sometimes twice annually, most of that time. And it amazes me that having done it over all those years, that every six months there's something new to write about concerning drug abuse. It shows what a changing landscape it is. And the most recent report had some very uh, significant findings regarding opiates in the Twin Cities. It found that just in Hennepin County, uh, that overdose deaths related to opioids in Hennepin County went from 97 to 153 uh, in just one year. And that's between 2015 and 2016. 97 to 153. That's deaths in just Hennepin County. Yeah. And the similar pattern in Ramsey County. And in all the years I've been doing this, we've never had really that sort of magnitude of increase in deaths related to any drug, whether, you know, it was uh, crack cocaine or whether it was methamphetamine. Um, This is really sort of an unprecedented increase. Um, So uh, this really sets us 
off and helps clarify the nature of this problem and the extent of the problem. I mean, this opioid crisis is something that's been in the works for at least a decade now, and it really shows, you know, there's few little bits and pieces and fits and starts of uh, good news, but overall, I mean, it's it just continues to go pretty much unabated. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that those figures, that increase is so startling over 2015 and 2016. And I think that there are a lot of people who thought, perhaps, um, that you know, the tragic death of, of Prince in, in April of 2016 might I think it did shine, you know, a light about how this really can happen to anyone, no matter how wealthy you are, uh, no matter how successful, no, no matter what kind of a genius you might have, that it can happen to anyone. And, and I think that there are some people who thought, well, maybe this will be lead to sort of a downturn at all. And obviously that didn't happen. I mean, do you have any sort of thoughts or perspective on that? Well, in terms of what Minnesota has going for it, clearly the overdose death of Prince that was related to counterfeit pain pills that actually contained the very strong fentanyl um, helped raise public awareness of this problem. So we have that going for us in terms of visibility. Uh, We also have uh, in Hennepin County now a new prevention program called Hashtag No Overdose that's having community meetings throughout Hennepin County. We have a statewide bill that provides naloxone, which is like an antidote for people who overdose so they can get that right on site and have that uh, overdose reversed, much like people who are allergic to bee stings can get, you know, epinephrine or hit with a little EpiPen. And we also have a very active advocacy group that was started by uh, some parents of a young man who uh, died of an opiate overdose. And, and that really has been an organizing point, the Steve Rumler Hope Foundation. So those are some things that we have going for us. But in terms of uh, how to really reverse this trend, it needs more uh, than the forces we have been able to bring to bear so far in this state. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest things that we need, and, and you know, when you look at how to respond to a drug epidemic, it really boils down to treatment, prevention, law enforcement. Those are the three traditional prongs of it. But because of the role that the medical profession plays in in prescribing prescription opioids, we also have to look with this epidemic at medical practice. If I could talk about treatment for a minute, um, even though Minnesota has a lot of treatment available relative to other places in the country, and in fact, you know, we have some of the leaders in addiction treatment located in our state, um, I happen to work at uh, one of them, you know, the Hazelden Foundation uh, for 10 years. And even though we have treatment that's both quality and accessible, like other parts of the country, treatment needs to do better in responding to opiate addiction. Uh, And what I mean by this is that we know that effective medications are available for the treatment of opioid use disorders, Um, but not as many people get those medications as should get those medications because many treatment providers in Minnesota tend to base their treatment not really on science but on ideology. So in other words, they don't really believe in using medications. 
Well, well are you talking about are you talking about the suboxone if I'm pronouncing yeah, it? Yeah, suboxone, uh buprenorphine, methadone. Those have been very effective and and proven effective. In fact, the World Health Organization says that buprenorphine and methadone are really essential medicines. But it's estimated nationwide that less that maybe only a third of the patients in the nationwide with opioid dependence uh, actually receive those medications. And this is a, is a persistent problem, not just here, but all across the country. And um, when I was director of the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Division at the Department of Human Services, uh, this was an area where I really tried to move the field forward to get them to embrace the medications uh, for this chronic disease with behavioral components, much as we use medication for other chronic diseases with behavioral components like diabetes and high blood pressure. Uh, But it was really a hard nut to crack. And uh, I was reminded the other, well, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a woman and it was uh, in regard to lining up a, a speaking appearance that I was making. And I was talking about points I was going to be covering about opioids. And I mentioned this point, and she said, oh, that sounds like my son. And I said, what? And she said, well, my son is a 19-year-old heroin addict, and he has been in 12 different treatment programs. Wow. And he's still using heroin. He's 19 years old. And when I asked her, I said, well, has, has he ever used you know, medication-assisted free treatment? And she said, what's that? Wow, okay. Uh, that's incredible to me because uh, think of a doctor that you go to for high blood pressure and he doesn't tell you, oh, by the way, we have medication for that. Or a doctor, you know, you have diabetes uh, and he doesn't mention insulin. I mean, it would be unheard of. But yet people are not getting the kind of quality treatment for addiction uh, that, that they could be getting in the state. And I think that's a big hurdle we have to overcome to really turn the tide on this. Well, I- I, I do know that, that for Suboxone, and what was the other one? I've heard of methadone. What was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, there's uh, buprenorphine is Suboxone. Okay. But, but in order to prescribe that, you have got to, uh, for a doctor to be able to prescribe that, if, apparently you've got to go through special training. Yeah, it's not very uh, long. What's that? It's about eight hours. It's not very long. Oh, it isn't okay. Because and and the the prescription. Because I was talking with a doctor who apparently there are only about a hundred doctors in Minnesota who have who've gotten that training. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, and it's also apparently it's highly regulated. Uh, you know, the doctors can only have so many patients uh, or or whatever. I mean, do, do those kinds of uh, barriers need to be removed? That needs to be looked at as well. And I and. You know, it's a challenge. Because, and that, but isn't that the yeah. FDA, though? I mean, that's... Well, the DEA looks into it, and it's all FDA approved, and this has really been proven by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the World Health Organization. I mean, all that approval has long been in place. It's really a matter of getting more physicians to do it, and, and it's a challenge because, you know, people who are addicted, um, you know, are very... Uh, can be very challenging patients. So not all doctors will say, you know, wake up in the morning and say, gee, I think I'll start treating uh, heroin addicts. Right. You know, but so, so the training is only eight hours because like, in the Prince case, I mean, one of the things that, that has emerged is that uh, a, a very famous treatment doctor in California, that they tried to get him to come in overnight and he couldn't you know, take the red eye. So he put his son on a plane with some of this Suboxone. The son was not a doctor. 
and he was going to bring it at, to give it to apparently a Minnesota doctor because that Minnesota doctor didn't have the training. But so the, there was the suboxone was actually a factor in that. But but you're saying from where you stand, you think that more people th- this is a helpful tool in helping people. Oh, cope absolutely. and 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 and, and it, right. it helps with the withdrawal. It's right. not a withdrawal medic. Well, it it helps with the craving. So uh, Hazelden started incorporating when Suboxone in their treatment. They realized uh, a number of years ago that many of their opiate patients uh, were leaving without staff approval, and uh, a sizable number of them not only were leaving, but then many of them were overdosing after they had left. And so they wanted to really take a look at what they could do to improve their medical practice and they incorporated the use of Suboxone in their treatment regimen. And, and at the time, I thought, well, this is great. It, you know, Hazelden is such a leader. Certainly other treatment prog- programs in the state will follow suit, and there will be more people getting the help they need through the use of these medications. Um, but that has not necessarily been the case, and that was really underscored when I, again, talked to this mother recently wow. whose son, I mean, imagine he had been had 12 different treatment episodes and not once did the treatment At the age of 19. Yeah, right. And so how many other people are there out there who aren't getting the help they need and just having these repeated treatment failures when, in fact, there's medication that can be brought to bear on it? Uh, The National Institute on Drug Abuse has been looking at uh, incorporating medication-assisted treatment into emergency departments. And it found, and there's an article recently published in JAMA about that, that says that emergency departments are a great opportunity to screen patients for opioid use disorder and initiate medication-assisted treatment. And they found that when patients uh, start it in the emergency department, they are more than twice as likely to remain engaged in treatment compared to patients who are referred out to treatment. Interesting. So there's something about, you know, the immediacy of treatment. And if they get started on those medications while they're in the emergency room, uh, they're twice as likely to stay engaged in treatment. So this is something that the federal government is really promoting and how you can get this better incorporated, not just into primary care practice, but into emergency room settings as well. And the results so far look really promising. Wow. Okay. Listen, Carol, we we do have to take a quick break. Could could you stay with us? Because I would like to ask you about fentanyl and carfentanyl, which are these synthetic opioids. I think everybody gets, you know, the opioid that that you get a prescription for your knee surgery and it lingers around. You take too much of it and you can get hooked. But, But these other ones are so powerful and so strong. And Apparently, people are getting them sometimes, and they don't even realize that they're getting them. So uh, can you stick around with for just oh, a little absolutely. bit with us? Happy okay, to. absolutely. All right. So more with Carol Falkowski uh, about th- these new synthetic opioids that are many, many more times uh, more powerful. One of them is the one th- that killed Prince, uh, about how these are coming on the market here. People are getting their hands on these, and they are dying because of it. So stay, stay here. You're listening to News Radio 830 W. It is 7.50 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Coming up in our next hour, a chat with Professor David Schultz. Uh, But right now we are chatting with really one of the nation's leading experts on drug abuse, and we're talking about opioids. And 
Carol Falkowski, I want to ask you about fentanyl and carfentanyl and these synthetic opioids. What are they and how are people getting their hands on them? Well, we'll we'll start with fentanyl. And fentanyl has historically been used in medical practice in surgical situations and immediately after surgery. Um, But in recent years, it has shown up on the illegal drug market and it's not the fentanyl that's made in, you know, laboratories by big pharmaceutical companies, but it's made in clandestine labs typically located in China and then imported into this country. And fentanyl in that form has been found um, and implicated in the counterfeit pill that was involved in the death of Prince, as well as in the supply of powdered drugs such as heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine. And it's often with the end users without their knowledge and perhaps even without the knowledge of people who are immediately involved in the retail sale of it. So it could be that people who are going out and just thinking they're buying heroin, as they always had, can encounter a batch that has some fentanyl in it. And because fentanyl is so much stronger than morphine and so much more stronger, so much stronger than heroin, just a little bit of it in that supply is enough to result in death. Now, in Hennepin County, I, I mentioned the Hennepin County deaths. In 2015, nine of those opiate deaths involved fentanyl, and that jumped to 39 in 2016. So from nine to wow. 39. And so, so you're thinking that, that so are, are people getting these counterfeit pills from China or the black market, and and they don't know, they think that they're getting like an oxycodone, and they don't realize that it, it has fentanyl in it? Absolutely. So, so that's that's what's, exactly what's happening. And it's so insidious. It's something that has never really happened before. And it's the wild card uh, that really makes buying either powdered drugs or you know, counterfeit pills, you know, from a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, uh, such a dangerous and potentially fatal proposition. Okay, so so the bottom line is, and, and how big is, I mean, are, are people, how are they getting these counterfeit pills? Is it, you know, a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy, you know, or your neighbor's 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 or whatever, or are you actually, can you sit there and order it on the computer from China? Um. Pretty much both of those things. Wow. And it's something that has to be, uh, everyone's on a learning curve in the field of law enforcement on how to shut this down. Um, and look at the how hard it is to track it down even in a high-profile death case like we had uh, with Prince. So uh, the people who sell these counterfeit pills are these street drug- drugs, uh, often have no specific information about the contents of the products they sell. And so they and there's no way to know or ascertain just by looking at the appearance of a drug or a pill if it actually has fentanyl in it. Now the second drug that you mentioned is carfentanil and that is another synthetic variation of fentanyl, but this is carfentanil is a drug that is used to sedate big mammals like elephants and hippos and rhinoceroses. I mean it's it's used in veterinary medicine. There's no human use of this and uh Several weeks ago, uh, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner had a press conference and said that uh, carfentanil had been involved in five deaths uh, in Minnesota. 
Wow. And they were looking at another five. Uh, they had their first one uh, last week that happened in Milwaukee. And it's starting to show up in many other cities. Now, this is so potent that uh, even something equivalent to like two grains of salt, imagine you spill some salt on the That's table. That's what they were saying, yes. Two grains uh, can be fatal. So it, it's, in a sense, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's almost like some sort of science fiction movie, uh, but this drug supply being contaminated with these lethal drugs is a situation really we have never faced in this country before. And, and they're that much more powerful than, than the regular opioids or the, oh, the, the yeah, prescription ones. Oh, fentanyl is, is 50 to 100 times stronger uh, than heroin, and carfentanil is, you know, thousands of times more powerful than that. So, And, and are these, let me ask you this, is, are they expensive on, on the black market? I mean, are people paying like $1,000 per pill, or is it no, I think $100 a pill? I, I think that's one of the things that is to be determined, but uh, they are not uh, prohibitively expensive, is my understanding of it. Right. And, and I guess, you know, for, for all the efforts that, you know, law, like, you know, for instance, Senator Klobuchar has a bill that, you know, to have a, an opioid registry, which obviously is, is a good idea that, that everybody should, you know, register this and, you know, states can share the information. But as I, are you worried that there's even the danger of well, as as we try and monitor the the prescription of opioids, and we only have about a minute left, that more people will turn to this black mar- market form that is so desperately deadly. Well, that is an issue, and we need to use. We have a prescription monitoring program, and states are communicating more and more across state lines to use them. They're absolutely cut down on doctor shopping, but at the same time, we need to get the word out as a public health message that buying street drugs in any kind of powder form or pill form can contain that. You know, these substances can contain fentanyl, and it is more of a game of Russian roulette than it's ever been before. Wow. It's not just buyer beware, it's buyer don't buy. Right, because it's gotten even more dangerous than it ever has been. Well, Carol Falkowski, great information. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Oh, yeah, thank you, Esme. Absolutely. Scary stuff, folks. All right, keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830. David Schultz is next. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.